uh, we looked at Colossians 2, 16 through 23, and um, along with that text, um, the elders have been reading a book together on the conscience, which I had with me last week, and I highly recommend you guys read it. It's called Conscience, What Is It? How to Train It in Loving Those Who Differ. If you got any Christians in your life that differ from you, we all do, right? So that book is a great tool to help you know how to, in Christ, understand those differences. So I wanted to look at that a little bit this morning, kind of take a little side trip, if you will. But let's read Colossians again. That kind of sets it up, and then we'll get into this lesson. We're going to talk about the conscience this morning. So Colossians two sixteen, <clears throat> Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with God you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So that kind of sparks this interest in the conscience, for me anyway, maybe this lesson is just for me, but... So the million-dollar question to start with then is, what is the conscience, right? We all have one, and a great definition is, it is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong, right? And that's the same for me. Excuse me. So consciousness means awareness or sense of. So you can say it this way. So conscience is our your mind, awareness, or sense of what is right and wrong. And what you think's right, I may not. What I think's wrong, you may not, right? And, and that's a hard place to get to, I think. At least it is for me. So conscience produces different results for people based on different moral standards. We all were raised a little bit differently here or there, so we, we all have different moral standards. And so then we need to ask the question of what moral standards should you and I base our conscience on? And Martin Luther's statement just nails it perfectly. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God, right? So that's the standard that we measure with. And the conscience is our our consciousness of what we believe, as I said, is right and wrong, It is basically your moral awareness turned back on yourself. Does that make sense? So we all have one, right? So also, interestingly, conscience is a human capacity, just like speech or thinking or reason. 
you can fail to develop a conscience. Children uh, don't, you know, their consciences aren't fully developed yet. Uh, People with diminished mental capacity, their consciences aren't fully developed. Well, also, you can lose it, right? As, you know, we grow older, we we can lose it. We can have an accident that causes some type of traumatic brain injury that would cause us to lose our conscience, conscience. We can get dementia. We can have a stroke. All of those things can affect this capacity of conscience. So key point also is conscience is inherent in personhood. And I had to think about that one and say, well, why? Why is it inherent in mankind, period, in personhood? And it's because we are all made in God's image. So we have a conscience that is capable of moral judgment since we know that God does. But what really thinking of it that way is what ought to surprise us is that we even care about the verdict of our conscience. And you might say, well, I don't give a rip. Well, we do. We might not want to admit it, but we all do, right? We care intensely, and we know that because I think that's a, a main driver in suicide, is there's a secret sin that no one else knew about in this person's life except that impossible to suppress voice within them. Right, that causes them to do those kind of things, and um, I, I mean, I had an example of that in my life. I don't know what it was with this guy. I got an idea, but he never told me, and he committed suicide under my watch at the ministry that I used to run. It's one of the hardest things I ever went through in my life, you know, because I witnessed this guy for for five months, just mentally tormented. And uh, and it was because of some sin in his life, and and um, thank the Lord. I mean, I had taken him to doc- Dr. Ryan, and, and he had worked with him medically, and you know, and I was working with him spiritually. But um, he he was like a caged lion. I've never counseled anybody like him before. He wouldn't sit still when we counseled. He would pace about the length of a row, like those chairs back and forth, and that's when it hit me one day. He's just like a caged lion at the zoo. If you've seen him, they, they just go back and forth and back and forth and back, and that was him. And, um, and we thought about putting him in a mental facility. I called CCEF and uh, places like that, and, and there, there aren't any uh, Christian or, let me say, biblically-based um, mental uh, facilities for people. So I thought, well, you know, should I maybe send him to a, you know, a, a secular psychiatric hospital? And, and I, my hesitation was that I'm completely removing him from the presence of the gospel. And that can't be good. You know, he was under doctor's care anyway. So, but um, there was something within that he could not, that, that was always clamoring to him. You know, and of course, after doing a study like this, I know that that was his conscience, and he couldn't deal with it. So, and I think if you talk to family members and loved ones of uh, people that have committed suicide, I think they would give very, very similar testimonies of things like that. So, the conscience feels like an independent third party, and and it's a great mystery that nobody knows knows why or quite how it operates, but. It probably has something to do, uh, these authors of this book were talking about, 
with the relationship between two universal realities that we see Paul discussing in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. So turn to Romans 1, and we're going to read uh, verses 19 and 20. And Romans 1, 19 and 20 claims that all humans know intuitively by the witness of nature that God exists and that he's absolutely powerful. So Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All right, then Romans 2, 14 and 15 goes on to teach that everyone also has a conscience. Imperfect but accurate enough version of God's will is a standard, as standard equipment to their heart. So 2, 14 and 15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts excuse or even excuse them. So accuse, I'm sorry, or even excuse them. So in verse 16 makes a connection between the conscience and the day of judgment. It says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ Jesus. So man knows intuitively that these things are true but in his lost, dead, spiritual state, they suppress those things. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I met with a guy Friday afternoon whose life is just in, in turmoil right now. He, he's got two businesses he's running. He's got to be out of one of them, the building on June 15th, and he's got another building. He's trying to get ready to move everything from that one to this one. Um, he's um, He can't get this one fully operational till he gets money that a bunch of people in the community owe him. So he's run, spending all his time running around trying to collect funds. And, and he, uh, he has a seven-year-old child from a lady that he never married <clears throat> that's getting remarried next week. He's got a girlfriend who won't talk to him that is eight months pregnant with another child. And he is reeling in his mind, racing in his mind. I don't know what to do, you know, and I just kind of came to verse, you and I, when we're talking and witnessing people, we need to trust these kind of verses that, that God has placed within mankind something for you and I to witness to, right? Isn't that awesome? Bank on it and do that. So I finally said to him, I let him go on for about 15 minutes and and maybe 20, and he spilled all that stuff out. And then I said, you know what? I've got those same kinds of problems. I mean, I don't have a girlfriend pregnant, you know, but, <laughs> um, but you know what I mean, though? I mean, we all, all mankind has problems, you know? And I said, you know, God's not a cosmic bellhop that you're going to go to church Sunday and pray and ring a little bell. God, I need you now. Fix it for me. And then you're going to go off and do like you've been doing. And, uh, you know, I said, but what God gives us, you know, I use the verse in Matthew, you know, that uh, if you are weary and heavy laden, 
you know, come to me and I'll give you rest. God doesn't erase our problems, but he gives us the grace and the peace, which you are obviously searching for, to, to handle those problems. And, and, and so, you know, that's, that's the part of the conscience in mankind that you and I get the privilege of speaking to. So they, it's there, you know, count on it and witness to that, right? So in these passages in Romans, um, if you put those together, they seem to explain the conscience like this. Though we all have a sense that what's going on in our conscience is secret, we also have a sense that an all-powerful, all-knowing God is, on the se- is in on the secret and will someday judge those secrets at his great and terrifying tribunal. So we got to understand that this conscience is a priceless gift from God, right? This is a gift for our good and for our joy. And, and it's something that God has given us. It's not something our moms and dads passed down to us. It's a gift from God. Um, if you think of your sense of touch is a gift from God. You know, you touch the hot burner one time, you know, you feel the pain. You don't go there again. Our consciences work that that same way. You know, that once we've been hurt by something, our conscience will instruct us, don't go there again. And, and the guilt that our conscience makes you feel us feel should lead us to turn from our sin to Christ, right? God gave us that sense of guilt for our good, but he also gave it to us, our conscience, for joy. Romans 14, 22, we read... Uh, some out of that, I mean, out of the chapter two, but verse 22 of chapter 14, the second half of it says, blessed, happy, right? Is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. <clears throat> All of us desire to be happy, right? I mean, don't you? I mean, nobody wants to be sad and unfulfilled. And, and that is how God, God's wired us that way. It's when we're seeking our happiness in something outside of him that our conscience starts to convict us. And and, um, pursuing God in true faith reveals that he is the only source of the most enduring happiness that we can have. And, I mean, the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is what? To To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know, that's... That enjoyment is our happiness, right, in God. And John Piper changes the word and in, in some of his writing. The chief end of man is to glorify God. And the catechism says and, and Piper changes it to by. You know, he, he spins off C.S. Lewis and says, you know, that we're just not, we're not enjoying God. By, I mean, we're not reveling in God by enjoying him. Right, we need to be more about that. He, C.S. Lewis, uses the analogy of you know God offers you a vacation at the sea, and we're much we're, we're pleased with making mud pies in the creek, you know. And uh, so nothing wrong with making mud pies in the creek, but if you can go to Destin, you know, for free, who's going to say no? I'll just stay at home and make mud pies, you know. And that's why we treat God, you know. We we need to do we need to enjoy God. <clears throat> by enjoying him. So our, our conscience is all about right and wrong. It's all about black and white. There's not much gray in conscience, right? Uh, and we'll look at it in a minute. If there is gray, there's a way to handle that as well. 
But remember, your conscience will either accuse or excuse. And your conscience is just for you, right? My conscience is just for me. Here's a great um, definition from a guy named Gary Medors. Uh, This is in the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. He defines conscience like this, quote, an aspect of self-awareness that produces the pain and or pleasure we feel as we reflect on the norms and values we recognize and apply. Conscience is not an outside voice. It is an inward capacity humans possess to critique themselves because their creator provided this process as a means of moral restraint for his creatures. Isn't that good? I mean, that just nails it. So we've got to understand that no two people have the same conscience. And for that reason, the Bible gives us instruction of how to get along with other people in the church who have their conscience, and I've got mine. So this is going to take a little bit of time, but I want to read two passages, uh, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. Would somebody like to read Romans 14 for us? All right, and then we'll jump from there to, yeah, and then we'll move to 1 Corinthians 8 from there. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, not to quarrel over opinion. One person believes he may be, I may eat anything, but a weak person only eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. He gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both to the, of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? For you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every one shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Get unclean. For your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. But do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever does serve Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what it eats. It is good not to eat meat or 
not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Everyone who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because eating is not from faith. And whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All right, then jump over to 1 Corinthians 8. Somebody like to read that one? Okay. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know, as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods either in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and for whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom should not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. All right, great, thanks. So you can see the difference in those two, P- different people thinking differently. I've got two illustrations. I know they're small. You can get your telescope out or your binoculars if you're in the back. But let's start over here. We've got Ann's conscience is this triangle. You can see it? And this is Bill's conscience is that triangle. And <clears throat> the letters stand for various rules of right and wrong, Though not identical, right? If you look at them, they're not identical. Their consciences overlap significantly with each other and what they view as right and wrong. They both agree that C, D, E, and F are wrong in their consciences. Those two are in both triangles. But if you look at Ann, she's got A and B that she feels are wrong. Well, Bill, he he doesn't see those things as wrong. And but look what he's got. He's got um, G is wrong to him, and all of these are wrong to Bill. So you can see by looking at that that they have differences in conscience that can cause significant conflict between them, right? If Bill starts going off, well, and you're just downright wrong because H says that uh, I, I'm not going to use the Internet without an Internet filter. You know, is that a sin? No. Well, obviously it is to him because he's got it in his conscience, right? But it's not there. So you see how that can make a difference. Now, jump over to this triangle, if you will, and we've got God's will now involved. you got 
Um, and um, uh, I have to look at my notes here. This gets confusing to me with all that together. <laughs> um, you know, Anne's conscience issue of B is not a sin before God. That's not in God's category, right? But uh, Bill needs to understand that these aren't either. So he can't condemn and for these things because those aren't in God's uh, God's will. But Anne better start thinking about G, which over here was not in hers, but it is in God's. And Bill better start thinking about A because it's not in his over here, but it is in God, so he's going to have to adapt A into here, and she's going to have to take G and put it into there. Does that make sense? But they both, neither one of them had P on their list, but that's a command of God that they both need to incorporate into their will as well. So the bottom line with something like that is, is we come to understand God's revealed will, which is what? The Bible, right? It's what we know from Scripture. The more we come to understand that, we have opportunities to move things into our conscience that we need to to have there that we maybe didn't know before, right? Clearly, uh, then we maybe need to weed some things out, you know, that I can't condemn you because it's not part of God's reveal will that it would be there. So, um, you know, that could be the case with, with a lot of things in life. And these illustrations really helped me a lot to understand how to live with other brothers and sisters that have different conscience issues than I do. Or probably better said, conscience issues that I have that they don't have. That's probably the better way for me to say that for me personally, because, um, you know, I can get um, real one-sided sometimes, very opinionated on some things. And if they're not part of God's will, then they may be in my conscience, but I can't oppose those upon you or anybody else. So the goal is is to mature to the point where our wills match God's will, and those are the things that we have there. And you know what? That's going to take a lifetime. So then the question becomes for all of us is how can we discern between our conscience and the Holy Spirit, right? You know, and you can't know infallibly. I mean, there are going to be times where you just really can't tell. But you can absolutely know that it's the Holy Spirit if the message or if the conscience contradicts God's word, right? Then we know it's the Holy Spirit. And it's not from the Holy Spirit um, if... If the message contradicts Scripture, if what I think is right contradicts Scripture, then it's not from the Holy Spirit. And we are constantly, they talk a lot about in, in that book about recalibrating your conscience. And that, that may take a while. I mean, think of just Paul in Romans chapter um, 7. He, he says, uh, I wouldn't have known that covetousness was a sin if I hadn't read it in the law. Right, and that's that's where we're constantly recalibrating our consciences. So now, to Paul, covetousness is a sin because he recognized that from God's word, and he recalibrated that. But when the message message is consistent with Scripture, the Holy Spirit is working through our conscience, and that's that's what we're listening to. So the difference is, Holy Spirit is the, the 
based solely on the word of God and our consciences when it, the two of them match up like that. So although Bill considers, look at that, H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O, to be truly wrong actions for him, to, he, he, he needs to obey his conscience in those areas, even though scripture is silent, right? But Anne can't come after him about it, you know, but he has to obey it even when scripture is silent because it's a, it's a conscience issue to him. Let's say, as I mentioned, that H is don't use unfiltered internet. Um, as long as Bill believes that, he has to, he has the, the, the moral, his, his moral, uh, commitment to God requires him to obey that. I think last week I used the example of squishing ants, right? You know, if it's a sin for you and your mind to squish ants, you know, then the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not squish ants. But I, and I can't say to you, hey, you know, quit squishing those ants. That's a sin. You know, it, it's, it's not. So there's a principle that God has put forth uh, for, for us in scripture in Romans 14, 23. Um, that we read, but let's read, it's the last verse, let's read that again. And this is what um, Jay Adams uh, calls the, the holding principle. You stay there. That's the holding principle, you hold on that. Romans fourteen twenty three. but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. You know, I think that might be wrong. Then you're condemned if you do, Right? If he, uh, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Until you can do it with a clear conscience, then it's sin for you to do it, right? Now, what would be some examples of that in our lives today? Um, I have one that we've had as a family for a long time, and, and it is we don't go to R-rated movies. Now, it, does God's word say thou shalt not go to an R-rated movie? It's not there, right? So that would have to be in my conscience. It would be in my wife's as well. So that would be, let's say, um, well, I guess it would be down here because it wouldn't be in God's, right? So for us to do it, it's a sin. You can go to it all day long, you know, and I can't condemn you for doing that. Does that make sense? So, um, um you know, a lot of people will say, well, PG-13 is just as Granted, it is just as bad in a lot of cases. But that's my line that I'm not going over. And then, you know what I get back a lot of times? Well, did you see The Passion of Christ? Well, yeah. Well, it's rated R. You know, you sin. So, you know, I mean, there's... You get the point. I've watched some war movies that are probably R-rated, but... Yes, sir. I guess so. Yeah. 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 So, so that would be a good one to be where you can't condemn. Yeah. I got the app. That's it. I know. We we had dinner with some friends. And then after 
afterwards there's a Starbucks across the street and me and Catherine don't mind going to Starbucks. So we're like, are you guys okay with going to Starbucks? Yeah. Because we didn't know. Because yeah. I heard that too. Yeah. But if it was going to make them stumble, then what we read there, you know, yeah, then you don't. Yeah. But isn't that interesting how many things we can go through like that, right? I'm telling you, this is hard for me because I, I, I like my, I want it my way, right? Uh, that's why I like Burger King over McDonald's. But, yeah. <laughs> my wife can't stand Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Yes, sir. That. And I've left that alone. <laughs> because, yeah, but you're right. You're dead right. It is. Yeah, music, absolutely, absolutely right. You know, those are, there's all kinds of those. And if we don't understand this, we start getting in a box. And if you're not like me, you know, right? I mean, isn't that how it goes? Um, but you're right. Those are, those are great examples. So we also, with all that, need to understand that we can damage our consciences, right? And we can damage them in two primary ways. And the first is that we can make them insensitive by ignoring the voice of warning, which will get weaker and weaker till what? It completely disappears, and then there's no warning, right? John MacArthur wrote a book years ago. I don't know if it's even still in print called The Vanishing Conscience. And is it still... Oh, great. I mean, you ought to read that one. And I mean, that was, what, 20 years ago or more that he wrote that? And he starts out in there with this story of, true story of an airline pilot somewhere in Europe, I can't remember, of an airliner, commercial airliner, full of people. I don't know how many they carry. The big planes carry more, right? The ones they fly back and forth across the ocean, they usually pack them with more folks. So, but anyway, the, I didn't know this, but the universal language of aviation is English. So all pilots, whether they're Germans or Italians or whatever, I guess speak English and for the uh, air traffic control systems. And um, anyway, this uh, plane was flying, I think it took off from Italy. I, have you read it recently? Not recently. Okay, well, it, you know, it took off, I think, from Italy. <clears throat> anyway, um the warning system, when they found the black box, which tells you what happened, they are hearing the warning. Pull up, pull up, pull up. The pilot says, shut up, gringo. Hits the switch and silences the alarm. A couple minutes later, the plane plows into the side of a mountain and kills everybody. And MacArthur uses that illustration to show that if we don't pay attention to our consciences, we're silencing the alarm and we become insensitive to that to the point to where it... I mean, you want a great illustration. I read one, <laughs> Judges chapter 16, it's the deal with Samson, right? And, and it ends with, in verse 20, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And of course, we know the demise that came from that, Right. Paul calls that the searing of the conscience, and he, he says that it comes through hi- hypocritical liars in verse, uh, 1 Timothy 4.2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Well, we can also damage our conscience by making it oversensitive, Ooh, by packing it with too many rules, and that's where the Colossians 2 passage came in for me. Packing it with too many rules that are actually matters of opinion, not right and wrong biblically. Does that make sense? You know, yes, sir. I was just going to say, 
challenge is to discern what is the origin of those warnings. That's right. Is it really the Lord? Is it really the Holy Spirit warning us on this issue? Or is it a warning from our cultural background? Mm -hmm. Or is it a, or, or, or could it even be some other voice? Sure. Trying to influence some kind of, uh, you know, like you said, baggage on us mm -hmm. um, that we don't uh, really need or won't be constructive or useful in our lives. That's right. And that's, that's the continual battle. Right. Right, and most of us are going to, from time to time, get in our conscience box that's not God's portion of it and, and dictate that on you, right? Or, or you on me. And I mean, that's what was going on in Colossians that caused me to go look at this further in 2.21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But God didn't really say that, right? And... Um, Matter of fact, culturally, speaking of that, as I mentioned last week, if you're going on a mission trip, you absolutely have to read at least the last chapter of the book because it talks about this conscience and, and cross-cultural ministry. One of the authors, it's co-authored, one of them is a career missionary in Cambodia, and he gives this great illustration in there. I think it's at the beginning of the book rather than at the end. They kind of write back and forth. But they moved to Cambodia, and he um, planted some fruit trees in his yard. I think it was a mango tree, you know. And the mangoes take a couple years before they start producing any fruit. So all season long, you know, they're watching, and it's finally the year that we're going to have some mangoes. And they get three, right? And he's coveting these things. Well, in Cambodia, it is culturally fine for me to cross over your property to get to your property, you know, I'm a little hungry. That mango looks about right. You know, eat it on the way over. So he goes out to get his mangoes, and there aren't any. Some dude's passing through his property, and he ate all three of them, I think it was. And he melted down. Because in America, there's the line. We got some neighbor. The ministry house is, is selling tomorrow. And when the old ministry house sold four years ago, I kept 0.88 acres of that because I owned it. So I made my yard bigger, right? So I got these pins out there that the surveyor put. And now I got a new neighbor moving into the house next door, which was the ministry house that is now selling. Well, what do you suppose I'm doing over there? Because my fence ends about um, from here to there from where my property actually is. You know, so I made it a point before I studied this <laughs> to go over there when the guy and his wife, after they put a contract on the house, I made it a point to show him where that pin was, you know, because, I mean, that's how we think as Americans. This is mine. You know, you better not plant something there, you know. And this guy in Cambodia, boy, he struggled with that. You know, he's... What did Jesus and his disciples do? You know, they walked through the fields and ate while they were going. Now, I mean, you're not pilfering every, you know, every piece on, but you get the point there. And, and, and that, you know, this kind of thinking explains why 20 years ago, some very strict churches were extremely careful about many issues, right? That they perceived were right and wrong, but they weren't necessarily from God's word. Some churches, 
I, I hate to even say this. This was in the book. Some churches train their deacons to guard the doors to keep blacks out. We're talking 20 years ago. I have two examples of that. I hate to stand here and say that. I'm not going to tell you the churches, but they were in the state of Georgia, both of them. And I, I had a, a, a guy that interned with me in 1996, and he was from First Baptist, the name of that city. In 1996, the deacons voted whether or not to let blacks in the church. 1996, right? The year before, uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, the year before, we were members at First Baptist Woodstock. I was a deacon there. And there's this smaller Southern Baptist church in another South Georgia town that has revival every summer. And they would call First Baptist and ask for a deacon to come and do different nights of their revival. So I'm Wednesday. They picked me to go Wednesday night. I thought, well, praise the Lord, you know. And I went and um, they had a big, we took some young people from the church with us. And it was about a two-hour drive, two and a half maybe. And, you know, they had a, uh, we got there at five and they had a meal. And uh, it was really good. It was a South Georgia farming community and everybody, you know, this was all homemade stuff. You know, homemade vegetables. It wasn't stuff out of a can. And, and it was really, really good stuff. And so I'm talking to the chairman of their deacons, right, who is... Um, the one that was in charge of lining all this up. And, and I said, there aren't many young people in your church. You know, um, well, what's that all about? I, you know, I thought on the way in I saw this college. And, and uh, he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, I would think that a college being two miles down the road, you'd have some young folks in here. And he said, well, it's a predominantly black college. And I said, well, what does that matter? And he says, well, the deacons have a rule here that blacks aren't allowed to be in the church. And I said, you need to tell the deacons to close the doors and burn it down because it's already dead. Now, that didn't go over real well, but I said it. <laughs> you know, I said, you may as well stop now. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's where we can get, you know, that's where we can get when we start letting our beliefs dictate this, right? That's where we're headed. And, and we just got to be so careful with that. But, um, you know, there's two great principles of conscience. Um, and and there's, there's a lot of principles, but there's two that rise to the top. And this is it, them. Number one, God is the only Lord of conscience. Secondly, you should always obey your conscience. Now, there is a limitation to, to obeying your conscience, and this is how they say it in the book. If God, the Lord of your conscience, shows you through his word that your conscience is registering a mistaken moral judgment, and if you believe he wants you to adjust your conscience to better match his will, your conscience must bend to God. Does that make sense? So, first principle then, God is the Lord of your conscience. Uh, we aren't. If we were, that would be idolatry. Right? That's idolatry. We're not the Lord of our conscience. But you must obey God. We always must obey God rather than ourselves because he's never going to cause us to sin. And the principle number two, you should always obey your conscience, of course, unless God's word says not to. And, um, and uh, to go against your conscience in an area that's not 
inside the red triangle, then you are sinning. That's the Romans 14, 23 that we talked about. So where does all that leave us? Um, In order for our conscience to function properly, the conscience must have a proper foundation built on the truth of Scripture. And secondly, conscience must be listened to and obeyed. And, you know, Acts 5.29 says we ought to obey God rather than men. And Martin Luther, a great quote here, I will not and cannot recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Uh, So the big question for us now is what should we do when our conscience condemns us, right? When our conscience condemns us. We all know the misery of that, don't we? You know, our conscience accuses us and condemns us and makes us feel guilty. It's a horrible feeling, right? What do we do? You know, John MacArthur says, the conscience may be the most underappreciated and least understood attribute of humanity. Psychology is usually less concerned with understanding the conscience than attempting to silence it. Some people devise ways to soothe their conscience or ignore it or stretch it so, so that they don't feel guilty. That's foolish. Your conscience is a gift. God gave it to you for your good. And when it's condemning you, you need to discern why and then respond. And that's how we deal with it. Discern why we feel this way and then respond, which I think goes back to what I teach people in counseling often is everything starts in our thinking then that affects our feeling, and then that affects our actions. And that's our responses. And that's how we have to operate our lives. Um, You know, this thing, this quote of Luther's, um, I will not and cannot recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. There was a guy, and I can't remember his name, but um, uh, Ronnie, you were in that small group uh, when we, the guy that, we were studying in our small group before we broke for the summer, um, uh, the Wednesday group. This is an advertisement. Um, second and fourth Wednesday of each month at the uh, Erickson's house at 1 o'clock. Not Dave and D. Erickson. Uh, not, uh, yeah, it is Dave and D. Erickson. Um, uh, but we um, were studying this guy. I can't remember his name. Uh, I can't remember his but we're studying the Reformation because this is the year of the Reformation, 500 celebration. And, and one of the guys in England, we were studying uh, uh, Anne, uh, no, Mary, Henry the Sixth, maybe, and, and Mary, I can't remember. But anyway, one of the guys that was a, uh, a reformer, he, when he got pressed, he recanted. And, and his conscience troubled him so badly. They burned him anyway. <laughs> Imagine that, so it didn't even work, but uh, he got killed anyhow. But, but he felt so bad. His conscience condemned him so heavily that when he, he, uh, he signed a form saying that he, he uh, what's the word, recanted his Protestant faith and was going back to Catholicism, well, when they burned him, he felt so bad about that, he stuck his right hand out into the fire first and let it burn off before the rest of his body was consumed because this is the hand that signed the recantation, you know. 
I mean, boy, that's tough, isn't it? So he made a stand at the end, but what Luther is saying is, I will not and cannot recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. You know, that would be the way to say it first off. So anyway, hopefully that helps you understand the conscience a little bit and tie that in with our Acts, I mean, our Colossians 2 there of, uh, you know, don't let people say you got to do this, this, and that if it's not in God's word. And, and I especially love that in the realm of the world that I have in my life and ministry of of addiction with how that ends in verse 23 of Colossians 2. They These things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know, you can set up all this stuff and that's not going to be strong enough to stop uh, indulging the flesh. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, I, I think you're dead on with that. And I think the when Shane preached through Corinthians a couple of years ago, um, when we got to these chapters of what we would call the Christian liberty chapters, he he preached that differently than I've heard it. And, and probably differently than I've understood it in the past, but I'm telling you, I'm hanging on it now. And I've read another uh, seminary professor, author, preacher, align up with exactly the way Shane was saying it. It was, um, the Christian liberties are, I have the liberty to not do that. Now, I'm telling you, what do you hear? I'll tell you what I hear. i got the liberty to do that if I want to as a Christian. You know, but that lines up with what you're saying. If if I'm really, I have the liberty to not indulge in that in order to keep others from stumbling. Because our lives are supposed to be, first and foremost, loving God. Secondly, serving others. You know, and, and you know, the warnings of all that, if we're causing somebody to stumble by what we're calling a liberty, you know, whoa, you know, woe unto you is... Uh, Jesus often said to the scribes and Pharisees. So, all right. Well, thanks for your time. And what was the name of the book one more time? Um, it is called uh, Conscience. <laughs> yeah, I got the author's name. Uh, it's called Conscience, but then the subtitle is "What Is It? How to Train It and Loving Those Who Differ." The authors are Andrew. David, last name N-A-S-E-L-L-I, and J.D. Crawley, C-R-O-W-L-E-Y. Really good. It's easy read, short. Um, 
great book, though. Yeah. All righty.